Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Stephen Pergam with the Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Center and Dr. Walter Orenstein of Emory University about the Delta variant and its effect on COVID-19 vaccines. Thank you both for joining us today. Let's begin by talking about the recent recommendation to provide boosters to certain groups who received the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Pergam, can you explain the details of that recommendation, why boosters are being recommended and who they're currently recommended for? First, just to keep in mind that there was a previous recommendation for boosters for immunosuppressed patients, and that's a couple of weeks old now, actually over a month now that that's been approved. And that is not just for the Pfizer vaccine, but also for the mRNA Moderna vaccine as well. That has been in place for some time. That includes cancer patients, solid organ transplant recipients, people receiving immunosuppressive therapy for other reasons. And that I think has been rolled out pretty efficiently to many of those populations. In the second phase, and the questions that were really brought up to both the FDA and the CDC's ACIP committee were about what other populations should be eligible to receive boosters. Data was presented from Israel in their experience um, and how they have um, given boosters, and also data directly from a small Pfizer study that looked at vaccine responsiveness. This current recommendation specifically focuses on the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and does not apply to the Moderna mRNA vaccine or to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And those recommendations are for older adults 50 to 64 years old who have a medical condition, it is recommended for them to get a booster for the Pfizer or BioNTech vaccine. Those who live in long-term care settings or who are aged 18 and older. People with medical conditions who are 18 to 49 are recommended to discuss this with their provider. So it is not as strong a recommendation, but one that can be discussed and considering the individual risks and benefits. And then the last is um, employees and residents at increased risk for COVID-19 exposure and transmission. And I think this was the one that was probably the most controversial. It passed through the FDA committee pretty um, reasonably, but I think was one where the ACIP committee was somewhat divided And then it was approved by the CDC director, uh, Dr. Walensky. And this includes groups like uh, healthcare workers, firefighters, education staff like teachers, those who work as uh, food workers or grocery clerks, et cetera. And this, again, is a situation where it is not required, but is considered for those with individual risks and benefits as a sort of a shared decision. So I think these are important updates to the guidance and ones that are currently rolled out and we're we're certainly seeing a lot of people get their boosters as, as we speak now. One of the issues for the immunocompromise is whether these were truly boosters or third doses for people who failed to make the immune response. When we're talking about uh, boosters for other populations, the concern is waning immunity, whether one needs to be boosted. And that's what led the, the ACIP and the FDA to, to allow vaccines, but in a, a substantially narrower group than initially announced. Yeah, Dr. Hortenstein, I think a really good point and one that we should really clarify is the idea of, is it a booster or a third dose? And that's been, even that's been controversial in terms of what's the right way to call it. I sort of think about the prime boost strategy is the initial. You get an initial vaccine, you're followed by a boost. 
And really what we're talking about here, instead of a booster per se, we're really talking about third doses, but it's often being considered a booster in certain populations, where as you said, in the immunosuppressed population, it's often considered a third dose. I sort of keep them in the same pocket, but it is interesting how that, that debate is even goes down to what we call these particular doses. Dr. Ornstein, can you tell us more about the approval process for a booster or a third dose, depending on, on what we're calling it? There are two groups that need to be involved. It has to be approved by the FDA in the first place, and then the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, the ACIP and CDC, uh, for actually what the recommendations are. The company needs to go to the FDA and provide data on why boosters are needed and what their safety and effectiveness is. And they will come with, the company will come with a recommendation for whom they think boosters should be considered. The FDA will frequently rely on its advisory committee, the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, or VERBPAC, who consider these issues, look at the science, and then make their recommendations to the FDA based on their considerations of science. The FDA then takes that into consideration and decides to, in these cases, give emergency use authorization, eventually full licensure and approval. Then the CDC evaluates how should these vaccines actually be used. What they do is they work with their advisory committee on immunization practices who look at the information and look at the need and weigh the benefits and the risks of the vaccine, what is known, what is unknown, and make recommendations. In general, the CDC director accepts the ACIP recommendations. One exception, as Dr. Pergam mentioned here, is the CDC director made some permissive recommendations, but stuck to the recommendations for what who should get vaccinated versus may. So the shoulds were compatible with the ACIP evaluation. The mays were allowing more flexibility for clinicians and others. The update with the immunosuppressed patients was a little bit unique because normally most of those recommendations would go through Verpac. Um, at FDA, and that actually didn't. That was an FDA pre-approval by the FDA specifically, and then that directly went to the ACIP, who then followed through with those recommendations. That was the one instance where it wasn't quite exactly the same. And Dr. Pergam, is it expected that the same recommendation will be made for individuals who received the Moderna or Johnson & Johnson vaccines? And what about extending the recommendation for boosters or third doses to the entire population? The first one is sort of up for debate because that's going to be reviewed by the VERPAC committee next week is to talk about Johnson & Johnson specifically, and I believe Moderna as well. Johnson & Johnson, at least the reports we've heard, and I have not seen the initial data, so please take this with uh, a grain of salt. Um, I, none of us really have seen the actual information that suggests that a second dose does provide benefit. But if you look at a comparator vaccine, which is the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a similar mechanism of action, it's an adenovirus vector vaccine, that second dose is actually important and provides additional protection 
And then at least in the press release from Johnson & Johnson, the second dose did look to be more protective than a single dose of the vaccine. Many of us think that it might be possible that that's um, going to be approved, but as a voting member of that committee, I can't speak to whether it will be or not. I think it's just more important that we need to look at the data and make that decision, but that will be reviewed. And then Moderna also has applied for a booster application as, as well. And from most of us, the understanding is that Moderna has a slightly different approach because they are, their booster is likely going to be a lower dose of their primary vaccine. So it's a separate product and a little bit different in how that approach is going to be put forward. But the expectation is those will be reviewed, at least on short time frame in the month of August, and, and hopefully we'll have answers to those questions. But I, I, I really don't know, and I can't speculate without seeing the data. The data available will be helpful, and then we will need to continue a process to monitor uh, safety and effectiveness as the vaccine boosters are rolled out. And I, and I think the second question is a, a little bit harder, is when will this be approval will be put in place for everyone? The focus by the groups that reviewed these really wanted to focus on two aspects. One, people at high risk for developing complications from COVID, meaning hospitalization, death, and other major issues. And then secondarily, with the groups at high risk for exposure to potentially prevent the waning immunity leading to additional infections, which could then lead to additional transmission events. I think that was the sort of thought process by many. When we get into other populations, I think that will take some time before we get to that. There's still some, some data that needs to be collected to understand sort of how long boosters are effective, what is the benefit in the long term in terms of uh, preventing COVID transmission, as well as sort of long-term efficacy in terms of hospitalization and and other complications. I think these are all going to be really important aspects that we'll need to look at more closely as this data is collected. So I don't envision it's going to be soon, but I, I do think that that's going to be something that will be discussed um, on a policy level throughout the throughout the system. Dr. Orenstein, what makes the Delta variant so different, and how do those differences impact the necessary levels of vaccination within a community to provide that broader protection? Well, the big issue is the Delta virus appears to be substantially more contagious. Most people think about twice as contagious as the uh, other SARS-CoV-2 viruses. And part of that is there are data to show that the viral load from replication of this variant appears to be substantially higher. One study, uh, there were estimates of about a thousand-fold higher viral load than with the other uh, variants. To put that in perspective, uh, CDC has on its website uh, potential scenarios for pandemic, pandemics with a number called the R0, the basic reproductive number. And this is the average number of secondary cases that would occur when a transmitting case comes in contact in 100% susceptible population. And the range that CDC used for other variants was two to four or 2.5 as their major thing. So to make the numbers simple, let's say the R0 for the other SARS-CoV-2 was two. After three generations, that would be eight cases, two times two times two. If the R0 was four, you're talking about 
four times four times four, 64 cases. So this is a major change in the transmissibility. The herd immunity threshold is calculated as R naught minus one over R naught. So to again, make the numbers simple, if the R naught is four, then four minus one is three over four, it's 75%. It means if the average case is transmitting to four people and three of them are immune, then transmission will occur to only one person. And if you go above 75% in that incidence, you'd go down to less than one case and transmission would die out. And so for the Delta variant, if you have a four to five or not, you're talking about at least a 75% immunity level. Now, the one issue about herd immunity that's misleading is it's not homogeneous. You have clusters and you have places with higher forces of infection. But the bottom line is you're going to need higher levels of immunity to stop transmission of the Delta variant than you do with the other variants. I think the other piece about the variants in general that's important is that variants in general have less, that they have the antibody level that's needed to protect against transmission does appear to shift. So probably most prominent in what was a, a strain that was first identified in South Africa, um, where there was more resistance to vaccine, where you needed a higher antibody level to sort of protect against initial transmission, still was quite good at protecting against hospitalization and death. But that higher antibody threshold does suggest that you need sort of better antibody levels to um, prevent um, transmission. So with Delta, it's not quite as clear how much of a difference that is. It's probably not as prominent, but it's still uh, somewhat of a part of the, of the process too that increases Delta's ability to transmit within communities. One of the reasons we've seen some people who've been fully vaccinated develop with SARS-CoV-2, although the ones that we've seen, at least locally, have been quite mild. The, the data are reassuring. And the most important thing is that people get vaccinated and we need mm -hmm. to convince them. And a decision about vaccination is not just a personal decision. It's a community decision as well. If, if anybody walks away listening to this message today is that the message that all of us would tell people is that getting vaccinated is is the key and that that small percentage of Americans I wouldn't I guess it's not really small but the percentage of Americans who are not getting vaccinated that needs to get smaller because that's who is filling up the hospitals those are the people who are getting very sick and are having the most complications right. from COVID exactly and that's not just vaccine people who are vaccinated if they need a, an intensive care unit for another user, mm -hmm. reason, That's right. they may be competing with COVID patients who are unvaccinated and needing an ICU. So it really is a community benefit in addition to an individual benefit to get vaccinated. So I'm glad you brought up the importance of people getting vaccinated, even getting their, their first series of the COVID vaccine, although we've been talking um, a lot about boosters. Dr. Pergam, vaccine hesitancy has been a major issue in the U.S. really since the vaccine has, has been made available. How do you think the booster recommendations may be impacting the vaccination decisions of those who've not yet had their first dose? Any decision that's made is going to be criticized and evaluated on multiple different levels. But those forces that try to limit the use of vaccines in general 
we're going to make any of these decisions and, and use them in ways that will try to convince people not to get vaccinated. And one of those you've seen is people saying, well, if it doesn't work well enough and I have to get a third one, then obviously it must not be something that I should get. Or how many doses am I going to need over the next few years? Am I just going to be filling up with vaccines in my arm? And I think that's really unfortunate because, you know, really what this is about is about protecting our communities, as Dr. Ornstein has so eloquently said. And the primary dose followed by a booster dose is where the majority of protection comes from. And the best thing we can do for individuals is to get them their primary series. One of the big debates for many around boosters has been, does this either shift resources away from those for primary vaccine? And the answer to that is no. We have plenty of vaccine within the United States to vaccinate our public, even with the addition of boosters. So, so that's not a concern from that perspective. And we didn't assume that everyone was going to get boosters. And I, I can tell you that's true. I think there is plenty of vaccine available. And so it's not a matter of vaccine availability in the United States. It's about talking to people about why it's so important. So just as much as we talk about boosters and how they could be potentially beneficial for high-risk individuals, I think we need to shift that narrative to say we're doing this for high-risk individuals who have either high-risk conditions, who are at high risk for developing complications, and those who are most at risk for transmission, and focus on the way that we can protect all those people additionally, those household members with cancer, those that teacher who works in a school who has an underlying condition like rheumatoid arthritis who might get vaccinated but might, get, might not get the full benefit. I think it's really about continuing to to get people vaccinated. That is the most important thing. You know, it's all about messaging. And one of the ways to message this is that boosters are an addition or that third dose is an additional benefit, but that the real benefit is in that primary series. And really we need to get people that because what we do know is that that primary series has remained really robust in its ability to prevent people getting hospitalized and needing and, and, and dying of the disease. And that that is really where we want to be focusing our energy in the general public. So. I want to see more messaging around that critical piece. And I, I've seen the CDC and lots of state health departments spending a lot of resources to try to continue that message. But these are also tough populations to reach. Um, these are often people that are receiving all kinds of information to the counter of why these are safe. And we need to keep talking about how important it is. I, I think there are some, some pieces of good news. Um, YouTube recently has taken down all of these sort of anti-vaccine groups messaging, which really can help people shift that narrative. Social media platforms are really looking at this very carefully. And so I think those are important steps, but we, we still need a lot of work and we need to figure out how to do this better on a longer term process, because it's not just about COVID. It's about measles vaccines. It's about flu vaccines. It's about others that are highly important in our communities. And we don't want to backslide in those areas either. What's really important is that the vaccines do work. They work very well against severe disease, hospitalization, death, prevention. But what we're seeing is some waning immunity in the mild to moderate infections, and we don't want to get to further waning. So this is a good sign, but that's why the interval in the recommendations for the Pfizer vaccine was six months because it provides protection very good. If it, if it was real concern, they'd be recommending boosters right away. The other potential advantage of the boosters is if you look at most inactivated vaccines, there's usually between the first and last dose in the primary series, a long interval that we may get even more sustained immunity after the booster in the people for whom it's recommended.
what's really interesting about that is that if you look at the antibody levels that Pfizer presented, is after the primary series, the antibody level was, let's say, 300. After this third dose, the antibody levels um, could sometimes be up to four to five times higher, which suggests that, you know, this may be the way forward with the vaccine in the long term. Or, as Dr. Orenstein mentioned, is it better at some point, and I think Pfizer's eventually, you know, will probably look at this, is there better to have a delay, a longer delay after that first dose that might provide benefit? We saw this with AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca had a slight variance in how they did their initial trial, and they found that some of the people who waited longer for that second dose had better immune responses. So I think even the process of how we vaccinate people may change over time. But I think one of the advantages of that third dose is it may be something that provides long-term better immunity, and that's where it'll be really interesting. We have seen this with other vaccines where you give a primary series and then you give a late third dose. So it's not unheard of in terms of how we approach vaccines. So I think it could be something that is just a change or a shift in how we think about giving these vaccines. Dr. Orenstein, as you said earlier, we know that the majority of hospitalizations due to COVID-19 are among the unvaccinated. And then people who need a hospital bed for any reason are essentially competing for space with COVID patients. Are there other reasons why hospitalizations are such a key metric? I think the big issue here was the need to prevent severe disease. And hospitalization death are the most important things to prevent. Had we had more vaccine, uh, and as we've moved into, we're stretching it out and providing protection to larger numbers of the population who are at lower risk of severe complications, but nevertheless can disease, get disease and get, get, can get complications. But the focus is what is the most severe events that we need to prevent? And that is clearly hospitalization and death. The other place that's, that sometimes people forget is two things. Is one is that the ICU exposure and the, IC, the need for ICU is, is very challenging because a COVID patient that comes into the ICU tends to stay in the ICU for up to three weeks at a time. And that can be a large burden as you accumulate those patients that it can take up a significant number of ICU beds. Some procedures like a complicated procedure called ECMO, um, which is often used for people that are very ill with COVID, is a very finite resource and can be very difficult to reach for certain individuals. So that's another metric that I think a lot of uh, states are looking at very closely because as that gets stretched, that means Someone who needs a heart transplant can get one because they need that ICU bed or someone who has a major other complication that requires ICU level care to save their life can sometimes be somewhat at risk as those beds fill up and remain full for some time. And then the other piece that I think is often forgotten in this is that with primary infection, people get other complications. They don't have to be hospitalized. But there are complications like long COVID and other complications that can be quite dramatic and may not manifest immediately that are long-term consequences that I think will be really interesting for us to sort of manage over time. So it's not just what happens with COVID primarily, but also the long-term sequela of COVID that can have pretty devastating effects on some people. And so focusing on hospitalizations and things like that's important, but let's not forget the other aspects that can have some pretty uh, heavy effects on some patients who get COVID. 
So I'd like to ask both of you for your thoughts on the decision to make boosters available in the U.S. when so much of the world has not yet had the opportunity to get vaccinated at all. That's a tough question. <laughs> and, uh, really, really, and, uh, really uh, important it, question. In that <laughs> yeah, situation, you'd have enough for everybody. We do have a global interest in reducing transmission. Uh, the Delta variant, for example, came out of India because virus was circulating and has an ability to mutate. So it's very important to support global immunization. On the other hand, from a political perspective, there is evidence that boosters are helpful, that there are people who benefit from them. I think it may be difficult to completely ignore the U.S., uh, itself from a, a political perspective, but at the same time, we need to work very hard to try and get people abroad vaccinated, not only for their benefit, but for our benefit as well. It's a win-win situation by providing vaccines to people in countries that at the moment can't really get them. In some ways, it needs to be both sides, right? The boosters are sort of here in the United States. They They've been approved. It's sort of moving forward. The The FDA committee was actually told not to consider that as part of our decision when we had our meeting. Some of these vaccines are a little bit harder to deliver to locations internationally. So the mRNA vaccines have a really clear mechanism for a cold chain that can be harder to do. It's not impossible, but somewhat more challenging. And so there are definitely an interest in developing other vaccines that can be transmitted around the world with more ease. That does not mean that we shouldn't be providing these. And I know the administration has really advocated and created more pathways, but it's a very challenging subject and comes down to decisions that are made on, on, on levels that I think Dr. Orenstein and I are not, are, are not a part of, but no question, I agree 100% that if we're gonna get out of this, that it's really about vaccinating the world and not just us. The potentially development of new variants that will potentially reach our shores and could have more devastating consequences than the ones we've seen so far. At this time, I'd like to thank Dr. Pergam and Dr. Ornstein for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Amanda Jessick. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.